I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Hi, welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Kate. This is Mike. Today, we have a super special guest who I first learned about in early June, and I attended a training session with her and was deeply moved and healed in the experience. And then she came to teach a training on healing racial trauma and race and the body and business in origin. And I got so many messages from women directly after saying basically, what just happened I'm in a puddle on the floor. I'm needing to like take some time to integrate how powerful that was. Everyone on the call was in tears. It was so beautiful. We had black women, white women, brown women. And so Milagros Phillips is a expert in race literacy. She has worked with diverse groups from corporate leaders to members of Congress, and she has spent the past 20 plus years facilitating race literacy programs that inform, transform, and lead to inspired action. She is an author, a facilitator, a trainer, and she really is a healer. And she incorporates her own experience as growing up in the Caribbean as a Black Latina in the Dominican Republic and living under a dictatorship in the Caribbean and then moving to the United States. And her work is just so powerful. And in the last, you know, however many years since we've been studying and learning about race and doing our own inner work to dismantle white supremacy inside our own selves. Like Milagros is one of the most healing, powerful teachers I have personally learned from. It's true. Yeah. It was amazing. The presentation inside origin that I watched was pretty unbelievable. And then even just having her on, I was really grateful that she came on and she talked a lot about in this episode, how we can make a change like ourselves individually where to start. And then also she addressed like the protesting that's going on right now. There's a big difference between what's happening now and what happened back when like Martin Luther King was leading protests. And so she explains what that difference is. And so it it really gets you to think a little bit about what we could do differently as we are creating change throughout the world in our local towns and states, et cetera, and countries, depending if you're outside the United States. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's something so powerful about a woman, a person who incorporates the body in her Mm -hmm. teaching, you know, race is inherently a conversation. Now she does clarify that race is not real, but racism is. So you'll hear more about that. But when we talk about racism, we talk about race, it is inherently a conversation about the body. And yet so many of the conversations out there that I'm tuning into don't talk about the body at all. And so the way that Milagros weaves in ancestral trauma and the way that the caste system, as she Mm -hmm. describes it and educates people about the way it lives in our bodies and how we can break the chain of traumatized people, traumatizing people, is to me like this is 
the place, at least for me to start. I can't tell anyone else where to start, but for me, it always starts with the body. And that's why I love Milagros and her work. So enjoy this episode, this conversation with Milagros. She is hilarious and wise and loving, but hard, like, you know, tough loving in such a powerful way. So enjoy. And please, if you love the episode, share it comment, subscribe, let us know what you think. We would love to hear your insights. Enjoy. Welcome to the Kate and Mike show, Milagros. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is really fun and I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks for coming. We are so happy to have you here. So you and I connected because I heard about you through Dr. Elizabeth Cohen, who heard about you through Regina Thomas-Hauer, aka Mama Gina. How did you come to be involved with the, or, you know, a speaker at Mama Gina's? Well, actually, I had trained her staff in 2018, and they loved it. They fell in love with the program, and Regina wrote this lovely note about her experience with that two-day program, and she posted it on her newsletter. And then they invited me to be a speaker for the Mastery Series for 2019, and then after George Floyd's death, when they were doing some, some deep work around swamping, you know, just really doing some, some deep stuff, she asked if I would come and speak. So, yeah. Awesome. What's swamping? Do you want to describe what swamping is, Milagros? <laughs> it's actually when we just go, we get in touch with grief that hasn't been dealt with, and, and we deal with it. You know, it's like walking through the swamp. So that's one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Those deep emotions that we don't necessarily deal with on a regular basis that we try to escape or pretend that don't really exist, you know? And so, so they have a process. I can't tell you what the process is, but there is a process to move through that. And it's very powerful, very powerful. (laughs) Yeah, it is very powerful having been part of it. I've never heard of that. (laughs) Never heard of swamping. Yeah, I guess I don't like bring it up in my usual lexicon. Well, is this something that's only happens in Regina's community or is this like a... Yeah, it's one of her... Oh, okay, great. ...tools or... Yeah. However, I think that's actually really well connected to your work because... And then you had come and spoken with us and given us such an incredible talk in origin about healing racial trauma and, and race in the body in a way that I think... A lot of the conversations don't include the body, which is interesting. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I know. We just kind of, it's, you know, one of the issues around race is that it's all in the head. Like people want to do the head trip with it, right? They, They just want the numbers. They want the, you know, they want to count measure around it. And what that does is at least when I used to go into organizations, they were a little scared of me because they were like, can you tell us what you're going to say? Can you write down what you're going to say? And they would literally ask me if this was like touchy-feely, you know? And I was like, it's a touchy subject and we all got feelings about it. So yeah, it's touchy-feely. You know, because in our culture, we don't like to do emotional stuff. We try to avoid it as much as we can, which means that we walk around with all this grief inside of us, we walk around with all this anger inside of us. And then when something happens that the nation becomes aware of, it goes to a whole nother level because you know what happens when you don't deal with the shadow, right? Is that everything that's shadowy that's inside of you shows up because you've not dealt with 
whatever it was that you've got, you know, inside of you. So, and, and the grief that has not been dealt with. And so it's really something that we need to understand that this is an emotional subject for people. It just is, regardless of which way you turn it. So... Yeah, I want to quote you from your book, Eight Essentials to a Race Conversation. And you said, the real work on race is the work of the heart. If problems related to race were just cognitive ones, we would have solved them a long time ago. But issues about race are emotional. And if we are ever going to change people's hearts, we need to appeal to their emotions. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, on Monday, when we do our lunch and learn, we're doing one, a lunch and learn on emotions this Monday coming up, race and emotions, because it is such a loaded topic and we never really deal with it. And then it comes up, right, when something in the nation happens and then we just kind of, something bursts, right? And then how we deal with it is we take to the streets or, you know, we do whatever we need to do in that moment, but we never go back back to actually dealing with the emotions that were affiliated with what has just happened. We don't deal with the grief. We don't deal with the trauma. We don't deal with any of that stuff. And as a result, it just kind of lingers and hangs out. Like there's this energetic field, right? What is it? Eckhart Tolle calls it the pain body, you know? And so we have the individual pain body around this issue we call race. But we also have the bigger pain body around our nation and it gets triggered from time to time and we just never deal with it. We never deal with it. So it's an important piece of work that we need to do as a nation. And you're saying we're never dealing with the emotions that was, can we just use a practical example? Can we do that? So something that happened with George Floyd, mm-hmm. right? And then we, a lot, we've taken to the streets and it's been about a couple of weeks. You're saying there's this lingering feeling that still exists. Yeah. And we should go back to deal with like a couple of weeks ago, how everybody like deal with the emotions there. So the emotions are always present. Okay. So whether we're conscious of them or not. So it isn't like you can go back, so to speak, by, right. by going back. When I say going back, what I'm talking about is actually dealing with what's in there to begin with. Okay. And so, so whether you move forward and you keep moving forward, you're still hanging on to that stuff. Like for instance, practical example. So we have all these people around the nation and indeed around the world who took to the streets after George Floyd died. And a lot of them were on the streets for weeks, just walking, protesting and all that. And I said to a friend of mine, you know, I'm really concerned about, the folks that have continued to protest because when they go home and because particularly right now, because of COVID-19 people are sort of locked down in their homes. Right. And we're looking at the possibility of another big lockdown coming soon or in the fall or whatever. And so, so you have these people who have been expressing right by walking and now you have them locked down in their home some of them live alone. They don't, may or may not necessarily have someone to speak with about the emotions of what took them out into the streets in the first place. Mm. The experience of walking through the streets and meeting up with different people and having connections with the various people as they went through that process. And now they're home alone. 
And I'm so concerned about that because the grief is probably still there, not necessarily having been dealt with. And so, so for me, it's great. And we needed the protests and all of those things. So, so, so it isn't anything against that. It's, it's my concern around the, the unexpressed emotions that are still there. Because remember, people are protesting, but you know, they're shouting out right? Whether they're physically shouting out by showing up and having to deal with the police or whatever, you know, and, and some of the, some people were in places where there was looting and breaking down. So, you know, so you've, you've carried, you've got all of that, right? And that's been internalized now, right? Like they've had that experience and we don't ever really break that down or talk about what those emotions are like, you know, what, was going on in that person's heart and mind as they were going through that process. And now they're home alone by themselves. Mm. And they may or may not have anyone to speak with about their experience. So I'm concerned about the depression that could follow Mm. because now they can't get out of the house. They can't do the things that they were doing before that helped them deal with some of the emotions that were bottled up inside of them. And now they may even be home alone. You know, so, I, so I, anyway, so I just, you know, I mean, I tend to kind of think holistically and for me, it's mind, body, spirit, emotions. So now you're at home by yourself and you've got these emotions that are still there, you know, that you have to deal with. Plus you have the emotions of the experience mm-hmm. of the protest and what happened and all of those things. So anyway, I just, you know, so, so I think that I don't think, our nation prepared for that. Like one of the things uh, that we've done, we have a, a newsletter that goes out every Wednesday afternoon to talk about what happened in the Monday Lunch and Learn or to give people information about the upcoming program. And one of the things that we've included there are hotlines, like suicide hotline, or if you need to speak with someone about what's happening with you, because I just think, I think we need to deal with that. I think we need to prepare for people who have been on the streets for weeks who are now going to be home, possibly even alone. I think our hotlines need to prepare for that. Mm. So, yeah. So, go ahead. Well, I have a lot of, I I made a list. Oh, you made a list of questions. So you are very prepared. (laughs) Okay. So, well, let's go with your first one because it's very similar to the question I was going to ask because you just posted this today, I think, or maybe yesterday on Instagram about suppressed oppression becomes depression. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious about, so how, so many sub questions, how... (laughs) What is an example of how suppressed oppression shows up? How does that show up for people of color? And perhaps how does that show up? You know, yeah, just how does that show up? Yeah. So, so it shows up for everyone in one form or another. Okay. And so, so let, me, let me just say that when you look at the 10 countries that have the highest number of depressed people, Our country, despite all the wealth that we have and all the opportunities that are supposedly there, right, we are the third most depressed country in the world. And by third, you know, the numbers that are measured are clinical numbers, right? They're not measuring the person who's depressed and has never said anything or done anything or may not even realize that they're depressed and just feel like something's wrong. I don't have much energy. I don't want to do anything, right? And so so we have that. So when you add that to the numbers, the numbers are even bigger than what we realize, right? 
So what happens is we live in an illusion of freedom. And by an illusion of freedom, I mean that if you're a person of color and you're looking out into the world and you're looking at the way that whites are treated, right? Looks like whites have a lot of freedom. I mean, it's very obvious that we have a system that oppresses people of color and black people. No question about that. And black people and people of color know that they're oppressed, right? Whites don't necessarily know that they're oppressed because their oppression is hidden behind privilege. And one of the ways that you know that you don't have the level of freedom that you think you have is because for eons, you couldn't marry whoever you wanted unless they were white. I mean, it was illegal. It was literally structural, systemic racism that meant that if you fell in love with somebody who was of a different color, in fact, one of the the questions, I do this thing called the wall of privilege in my two-day seminar. One of the questions that I ask the audience is, have you ever been attracted to someone who was of a different, you know, so-called race? Because we know race isn't real. Racism is real, but race is not, okay? But have you ever been attracted to someone who was of a different race and felt like you couldn't follow through with that attraction because of how your family was going to view the relationship, how your community, your friends, and so on, we're going to view that relationship. And so you decided not to do that. I mean, how free are you if you can't do that, right? And and so there are are a lot of little things that, uh, for instance, one of the ways that you could be ostracized from your community is by talking about race. You started talking about race in your family, in your community of white people, and like nobody wants to talk to you anymore. In fact, here comes the person who we shouldn't be talking to because even though you may have only brought it up once or twice, to them it feels like you're always talking about it. <laughs> you know? And so... Yes. <laughs> it's like, I've only talked about it twice, but that's like, you know... And so as a result, you can easily be ostracized. But there are other things that show up, like for instance, living in a particular neighborhood, right? And so even deciding to sell your house, who are you going to sell it to? You know, because the neighbors can make a big deal if you are in an all-white area and you're the first person to sell to a black family. How free are you if you can't just sell your house to anybody you want? Do you know? What I mean? So there are a lot of ways in which whites are oppressed, but it's not as obvious. So what happens is human beings are naturally wired for freedom, spirituality, love connection. That's like a natural wiring, okay? And that, this is what the research is telling us. So if our natural wiring is freedom and love and connection, and you live in segregated neighborhoods, you go to segregated schools, so you're not making what I call the sacred connection, right, with everybody. You're limited in whom you can make that connection with. We are one human family, and if you're limited in the way that you view family, again, your natural tendency as a human being of connection and love and unity are being usurped by a system that's been around for over 500 years. And your disconnection is decontextualized because you have no context for it anymore because nobody's telling you the history of why and how you know, and so you just do as everybody else has done. And as a result, you don't see your oppression, but your body does. And the body doesn't lie. 
And so the body knows that it's being oppressed and so it becomes depressed mm. because it's not being allowed the fullness of its expression through connection and love and, and unity and all of the things that human beings are naturally wired for. And if you inch out of that structure, you could lose your position in the family, in the community, in, you know, and, and so, so the threat, the threat is loss. The threat is loss. And so you don't see your oppression and you live within the context of what's been dictated because the threat is if you don't, you will lose. You will lose family, connection, you know, all it's, what you have within the structure of a limited environment is still valuable. You don't want to lose that, right? And so as a result, that's how you get controlled. Mm-hmm. And the body knows that it's being controlled. Because the body doesn't lie. And so as a result, it goes into depression. So that's why we're one of the most, even though we make so much money and da 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 da, da we are one of the most depressed nations in the world. Mm-hmm. There are nations that, were, that are way poorer financially than us who are not as depressed as we are. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. And also, you know, here's another part of that. Because I tend to look at things from the perspective of frequencies, right? And we've talked about, you know, that I used to be a sound therapist and use my voice and bowls and all kinds of things to bring up sounds, right? And so when we look at it from the perspective of frequencies, our natural frequency isn't being expressed, Because frequency is like sound waves. It goes out of your body, right? So we put out this electromagnetic field that's filled. I mean, our bodies are constantly singing, you know, and and they have this beautiful frequency that happens. And one of the most powerful times for us in terms of expressing frequencies is when we're happy and grateful and joyous and all those kinds of things, right? And so, so all of those frequencies go out into the world. And as a nation, we have to think of what kind of frequency are we putting out? And how is that frequency affecting us as individuals? How is it affecting our children? What are the ways that we're not always conscious of the way that these things affect us? So, but, but the thing is that once we become conscious, then we can choose the frequency that we will live out of and how we will connect with people in spite of what we've been told and, and how things have been structured so that we don't connect and all those kinds of things, you know, cause I mean, it's not real anyway, you know, we might as well do something to get rid of it. <laughs> it's like, you know, like, why are we maintaining this? Well, we maintain it because we don't know. People don't know what they don't know. And when we don't know what we don't know, we act out of whatever it is that we do know, thinking that we know everything. <laughs> yeah. I know. I'm a smart ass myself. I always think I know everything. You know what I'm saying? And, so, and every once in a while, I was like, yeah, check yourself, girlfriend, because you don't know this, right? <laughs> it's like this constant self-reflection. Yeah. Self-reflection. Because that is such a gift to us as human beings that we have the ability to check ourselves. And to step back and ask, 
oh, what was that really about? What does that mean? And why am I thinking that way? And why am I feeling that way about those people? Why is it that I think that if I see someone across the street that doesn't look like me, that they don't belong in my neighborhood? I mean, that's huge, you know? The idea that your neighborhood is so homogenous that you see a person across the street and you go, that person doesn't belong here. I tell you a funny story. So my children and I, <laughs> I actually moved to Michigan. I was invited to start the National Research Center for the Healing of Racism back in 2000. So it's the middle of the school year and I moved to Michigan with my younger son and my older son came because he's very protective of us and he's sort of, you know, he, he came to make sure that we were going to be okay where we were kind of thing. And we walked into a grocery store and it was in Albion, Michigan. And the woman behind the counter said, you know, around here. So I said, yes. She goes, these are your boys? I said, yes. She goes, oh, yeah, I could tell you knew around here. And so anyway, we walked out of the store. Look, it, I'm a New Yorker. I'll always be a New Yorker, okay? Uh-huh. In New York, we mind our business, okay? <laughs> so I walked out of the store. And I looked at my two sons. I said, we're not moving here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. My oldest son said, yeah, they're kind of nosy, aren't they? <laughs> Welcome to the Midwest. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, is, funny. that is funny. <laughs> so, okay, so I have studied enough about trauma, and you know far more than I do, to know mm, that... I wouldn't know that. Well, I feel like you do. <laughs> to know that you know, emotions get stuck in our body, right? Through traumatic experiences. And obviously racial trauma is a category of trauma and there's many other kinds of trauma as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm curious from the ancestral perspective of things, this has come up a lot with different women I work with and certainly with myself and friends processing in this moment of collective awakening or however you want to describe it women who have oppression in their ancestry, which PS, you just clarified that we all do, (laughs) but like more, you know, more direct as women of color, but maybe they're white presenting and then white people like myself, you know, feel it in a different way. You know, I've done some research to realize that there was a whole history of, of trauma because, you know, back in the middle ages, white people were, killing each other and terrible stuff. Right. And then we came over to, you know, the America and, or the new land, I don't know what you would call it, (laughs) but, and then started doing that right to indigenous people and, and enslavement. And so I'm just curious, can you talk a little bit about ancestral trauma and how that might be showing up for different people in 2020? And I understand you could teach like weeks of workshops on that question, but just whatever you feel like saying today. I'll make my, I'll make my answers a little shorter this time. <laughs> yeah, so here's the thing. We all carry some kind of historical trauma because every tribe in the world has been through stuff, right? So the easiest thing for people to do is to simply recognize that they are carrying some kind of intergenerational historical trauma that affects them in different ways. And it's, it's great that we now have the epigenetic studies that show that, you know, it, it's, it, you inherit the trauma 
from one generation to another. It gets passed on from generation to generation. And so I think it's important as we look at intergenerational historical trauma for people to deal with their own ancestral history around that particular trauma. So for instance, if your family came because of the potato famine, then your healing, your ancestral healing has to do with that. And the way that Irish communities behaved once they came to the U.S. Because remember, they were still carrying the intergenerational historical trauma, the stuff that happened to them over there, right? So now they're coming here, and now we're talking the 1800s, and they are still carrying not just the old trauma of the institutionalized crime and punishment stuff that they were doing all over Europe, but they're also carrying the trauma of starvation. And they also had, you know, the physical body received that as malnutrition. And when you're malnutrition, you can't even think straight. I mean, it is what it is, you know? So you have those people coming here um, at that time and feeling that because they were white, they should be allotted certain rights, except that Americans didn't consider them white. And they had to become part of the melting pot. So they had to lose, because a lot of it is always, always around loss of some kind, right? And so they had to lose their accent. You know, there were certain things that they had to do in order to fit in. But by the next generation, most of them could fit in. You know, because now they, they spoke like an American and they, you know, there were just things that were allotted to them. But they still were carrying those last names. They were still carrying the last names. And sometimes, no matter how white they were, those last names were used to keep them out of places. And if they were also Catholic, it really meant that they were kept out of a lot of places. Right. And so, so there's trauma around that that needs to be healed and looked at you know, from that perspective for those folks. Then you have Jewish families who among the first people that settled in this country, and no one ever talks about that, were Jewish and Islamic families that had left Europe because it was such a difficult place for them to live. Because during the Spanish Inquisition, and I always tell people, like, yeah, you call it the Spanish Inquisition, but this was happening all over Europe. They were running Jews and Islams out of there. And so a lot of those people were looking for a place where they could worship freely. I think it's really interesting that the story that we hear about the pilgrims and the first settlers in this country were Baptists or they were, you know, like they were some kind of Christian sect, right? And so we never talk about the Jewish families that have been here since the 1600s. Wow. Because they left Europe looking for a better place to live. So they carry a very specific kind of, you know, that's that persecution trauma, right? And then you have the Jews that came over after the Second World War, after the First and the Second World War, particularly the Second World War, which was particularly horrific for Jews in, in Europe. And so they were also looking for a place to settle. And they were on boats for eons because nobody wanted to take them in after the Second World War. So they, they're carrying that level. You know, so everybody has their own historical trauma. The Chinese, after they helped to build the railroad that went from the middle of the country out west 
they were run out of town everywhere. And some of them were lynched and sometimes they were lynched in groups, including children, you know? So, so there's healing around, you know? So what we have is a country of people who have come and been mistreated in a lot of different ways. We have, you know, the internment of the Japanese, like a lot of people didn't know we had concentration camps in this in this country, in the middle of the country, and people were held there for years, for years. So there's all of that. And so there's healing around, you know, for, for those folks, there's that healing that has to be done. For people who were enslaved, there's that healing that has to be done. For people who came from Latin America, there's that healing that has to be done. And then there's the, the reality that, for instance, most of the Southwest and most of California was actually Mexican. That's why you have all those Spanish names there. And so many of these states that people don't even think or consider, and I'm not talking about New Mexico, you know what I mean? Because people are like, oh, it's like, no, there's Nevada, which means snow. Mm-hmm. There, I mean, there are all these places and, and they didn't even bother to change the name. They just, it's like, they did. but just the idea that, there's all of that, yeah. the land grabbing and the genocide of the natives that were here when the Europeans started arriving during that time frame. Because we've had people travel to this part of the world for many, many generations, you know, but it was particularly horrific after the 1400s. You know, so we have healing around that. And it's not just natives in the continental USA, Central and South America. It's also natives in the Caribbean, the Caribs, the Arawaks, the, you know, so, so there, so there's this huge thing, you know, around just this. I mean, we're not even, I'm not even going to touch the other parts of the world and what's going on with that and the intergenerational historical trauma around the wars and, and all those kinds of things. Mm. So each group, has their own healing. And then because we live in this country, that was started by the genocide, the land grabbing, the looting, the, you know, like all of that stuff. There's healing around that. And then there's this whole bigger picture around reparations and who got reparations and who didn't. I mean, you know, so that, you know, like a lot of people don't realize that after the civil rights, plantations that owned enslaved humans sued the U.S. government for loss of property and won. So they got reparations. Wow. Yeah, they got reparations. A lot of people don't know that. You know, it, it, the reparations for uh, the enslaved Americans when, when they were set free was supposed to be 40 acres and a mule. In some places, it, it was supposed to be 40 acres and two mules, right? But they didn't get that. But the folks that sued for loss of property, they got reparations. Mm. And so I always tell people, but reparations were made for slavery. It just didn't come to you. The wrong direction. Exactly. You know, reparations were made. It's just, you know, you know, and we've made reparations. We made reparations to the Jews. The Germans just stopped paying the Second World War. We made reparations to the the Japanese after the internment camps, you know, so so we know how to make reparations. It's not, we don't know how to do that. You know, we've done it before. <laughs> we know how to do it. You know, it's who we choose to make yeah. reparations to and who we choose not to. Yeah. Yeah. 
Thank so anyway, I said I wouldn't make it a long answer, but I can't it's help great. it. It's so great. <laughs> so how, how do we heal then? I mean, where do we go for that? Because we don't have, you know, most families don't grow up talking about healing. Most families, it's not like normal to be in therapy. That still, I think, has a little bit of a stigma to it in certain communities. So, so where do we go? Where do people start? I think it starts with awareness. You know, I always joke that I had done enough self, you know, personal growth work that at one point I finally became aware of the fact that I really needed healing. at some point you know when you start to walk that path thinking like i'm okay right and and then all of a sudden it's like oh my god i seriously need healing (laughs) which is what led me to do this work right because for me that healing was around the generational stuff around race and racism and and that kind of stuff so that so that's where so so my entry point was my own need to heal my own desire to feel whole because at some point I became aware that I wasn't feeling my own wholeness, that I never felt safe in the world, that something was off, something was off. And so I began that journey of, well, what do I do? How do I heal? And that's what led me to discover, you know, and, and work around a lot of these, you know, like the sound and the, you know, like all these things that, because I was looking to heal myself. And, and here's what happened to me. Talk about emotional awareness and seeking psychiatric help because I was thinking something's off. I couldn't figure out what it was, but I knew something was off, right? And so I had this, this therapist at one point who was really, he was very good and very mature in his own right and could understand what I was talking about. And he said, oh, you've just been in shock for X amount of years, right? So like he got it. But that therapist moved away and I had a young woman and she was a white young woman. And I went to her twice because I always like to give people a second chance, right? So the first time I went to her, I thought, this is not a good fit. This person like has no clue what I'm talking about, right? And then I went a second time. And the second time I remember, I don't remember what I said. I don't even remember what her response was. But I can tell you that I remember thinking, okay, I'm screwed. She can't help me. I don't know that anybody here can help me because what I've lived through in one week, she hasn't even imagined in five years. Like I just, you know, I was a young mom and I was like, okay. So that led me to seek my own healing Mm. because I knew that there wasn't anybody out there who could help me at the level that I felt that I needed help. So when people become aware that, that there is something to heal because we're still in denial, you know, around a lot of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you need to look at history. And there are people who just want to go, oh, I just want to go from here, right? I don't want to look at the history. Forget that. But here's the thing. You know that the saying that those who don't know their history are bound to repeat it? You know, I'm completely mm-hmm. paraphrasing, you know. So there's a reason for that. So if I took apart a building and I had all this rubble, on the ground because I took this thing, you know, I dismantled it and I just, you know, ripped it apart and got rid of it because it's the past. Right. And I don't clean that up. And I try to put a new edifice on top of that. What do you think is going to happen? Yeah. Yeah. And so we keep trying to do that when it comes to the issue of race, 
We don't want to look at the past. We just want to go from here on. And we keep doing that. And as a result, we keep repeating the past. And we think that we're creating something new and inventing, oh, I got this great new idea. And it's like, mm, try that like 50 years ago. Didn't work then. Probably won't work now. You know, I mean, it is what it is, right? So for me, the healing piece starts at why am I feeling this way? Because that has a history, right? That didn't just show up today. Like I'm feeling it today, but I'm feeling this way today because there's something inside that hasn't been looked at, hasn't been cleaned up, right? Like, so, so that's the rubble. So we, so we need to sweep that, clean that, set up a brand new foundation that is sturdy enough to hold a new edifice. Because if we keep building on top of the old without cleaning up the old, we're never going to get it so that it's a good, strong, sturdy building, right? So I always tell people, if you're serious about doing this work, become race literate, learn about your, your own ancestry, look to see how and why and the various ways that your family did denial around this topic, because mm-hmm. sometimes people do denial, but oh, we just moved to a different neighborhood, right? Like it was actually white flight, right? And so, mm-hmm. and, and so the story is, oh, this was just a better neighborhood, but there's something else behind that, right? Because it could have been a better other neighborhood, like, you know, so being intentional about learning the history and not being blameful of those that came before. Mm. They didn't know what they didn't know. They did the best they could with what they had. They too were being controlled. They made choices that, you know, sometimes, you know, people have shame around family structures and family choices, but you have to remember that they were living under a structure that allowed them to behave the way that they behave, no matter how badly that was. And so it's looking at it with wide open eyes and if, if the feelings of shame come up, that's okay, but not to linger there because there's nothing you can do about the past but to learn from it, mm. right? So how we restructure is by learning from the past. And that doesn't mean being in a place of finger pointing and they screwed up and so I'm screwed up because they were screwed up. Thank you so much for that answer. And just in case folks listening, it's a funny cut. It's because we lost Milagros for a minute, but she's back. Okay. So I wanted to ask you this next question that came in from one of our members of origin. And she says, how do you see the role of protest, all forms, including peaceful and rioting as a way the body releases pain and trauma on a personal level and creates change on a social global impact level? So what's the role of protest in trauma healing, really, and also social change? It's really important because it's a form of expression. Hmm. And so you're not bottling it up. You're putting it out there, right? So you're, you're expressing, you're pressing it out of your body. And that's really important to do. When it comes to social change, that's a different story. That's a little bit interesting. So I see a lot of the protests today as being different from the protests that we participated in in the 60s and 70s. So during the civil rights movement in particular, and I, you know, I wasn't around during that time frame, but, but when you look at the history of that, what you realize is that while people were protesting and marching on the streets, the civil rights leaders 
we're negotiating with the national leaders. That's a big right. difference from what's happening today. Right. Today, people are taken to the streets, and, and, and we have social media and media that's paying attention to that. I mean, right now, I know there are still people protesting around the country, but I'm not seeing it on the news, per se, on the regular news. They're not really reporting it that much anymore because people get bored with the same story, right? But there's still people out there protesting. So it has its place. But ultimately, if it doesn't change the structures, right. it's... You know, and, and I mean, it's never a waste of time. It really isn't, but it doesn't, it doesn't move the needle like it could if we could get some structural change out of it, if the systems would change out of it. And it looks like some of that is happening because there's been enough pressure that people are looking at how do we change the, the police and how do we, you know, so there is something coming out of there. And I think a lot of that has to do with we do have some leaders that have awareness around what some of the things that need, you know, making some change. So I think protesting is important, but I also think that it's important to, to make sure that that protest leads to what we want, which is structural change, changes of laws and things like that. Thank you. So do you have another question? No, over to you, honey. So this is more of a personal question because this is, feedback we've received from doing podcasts like this mm-hmm. is because you said in your interview with Kate for origin was about it's white people's, I don't remember the exact quote, but you can correct me. It's white people's job to heal racism or to fix racism. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 Okay. Because racism is a problem for people of color. It is not the problem of people of color. And so whites need to heal themselves of racism and all the various forms that it takes. And, you know, when I talk about that, I talk about it from the perspective of a caste system that set up some very specific Mm -hmm. um, dynamics for the individual groups, right? And so whites internalize that caste system of supremacy. As a result, the racism that exists today and the way that we have racism set up, it's actually a white problem because it's a supremacy problem. And just to give some background to the word supremacy, which got co-opted into the racial dynamic, supremacy is something that comes from the rights of kings to rule over the masses. Okay, It's the superiority thing. It's I'm supreme over. That's where that comes from. So when we are looking at racism, and we're talking about white supremacy. A lot of people don't realize that that term comes from, from that, is the right to rule over others, which is the right of kings and that kind of stuff. That's, that's where that actually comes from. So that part of the healing has to be done by whites. People of color need to heal the way that they internalize the oppression, the Stockholm syndrome, the, you know, the mm-hmm. various forms that they internalize the oppression. So that's our role to heal. But ultimately, everybody needs healing. You know what I mean? Because it's it's a false system that we've all internalized. It is a false system. It's a system that was set up for economic reasons, you know, to have people work for free so that you can build wealth. I mean, it's as simple as that, okay? And so now what's been inherited has been all the stuff that has come from that. And as a result, 
you know, I always remind people that racism is a problem for people of color, not the problem of people of color. We have oppression that we need to heal from. That's our piece of the pie. And ultimately, we all need healing, and we can do the healing together in terms of having the awareness that we are each healing a different part of, of the system, you know, for our individual groups and what we internalize from that. Hmm. So beautiful. So a follow-up that happens is saying, like, you're not an expert to talk about race. Like, this is feedback we've received as two white people talking about, you know, sharing this information. And it's like, stay in your lane. So I guess my question is, for white people to heal, we have to have conversations like this. And so it's it's staying in my lane would be me just keep operating the system and the structure that was already established for me at birth. Yep, and that's not going to work if we're going to make change. So here's what I tell people. Because I, I hear that a lot, Mike, you know, there, okay, let me, let me backtrack. So there's anti-racist work, which is very specific. It's very different from what I do. I do healing racism right. work. So I really focus on how do we heal, right? Anti-racism is different. And in anti-racism work, there is a whole piece of that, that it's, oh, you white people need to go talk to other white people and you need to go figure out how to solve this thing. But here's the problem with that. White people have never had to look at racism. So most of them don't know what to do unless you go to a lot of like anti-racist classes and, and you know, or healing racism. You don't know what to do. You know, people don't know what they don't know, right? So it's sending people to have conversations that may, who may not be prepared to have those conversations with other whites because, first of all, they, the other whites don't want, even want to hear it, right? And I always tell people, when you strike up a conversation with someone about race, with a white person about race, you're triggering their stress response. So it's fight, flight, or paralysis, right? It's like they're either going to fight you for what you just said or they're going to want to get away from you as quickly as they can or they're just tune out, right? So when you're dealing with that conversation, you need background work. The thing is that people of color have been for centuries made to serve whites, Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, they know whites really well, (laughs) you know? And you had to for survival, just for plain survival. I call it living in the house of Pharaoh, okay? I call it living in the house of Pharaoh because, you know, Moses wanted to liberate his people. And the reason that he could do it, he was eventually successful, was because he knew Pharaoh really well, right? Like, he knew what Pharaoh loved, what he hated. He knew what scared him. Like he knew exactly what to do about, because he lived in Pharaoh's house, right? So here's the thing. People of color have been literally forced to live in white society's house and to serve in those houses. And they had to know the people they were serving really well, because if they didn't, they could get killed. I mean, you know, (laughs) beaten, killed, whatever, right? Whites didn't have to do that. I mean, to the point where I have friends who have had, you know, when they were younger, they had black maids in their homes. They didn't even know their last name. They didn't know anything about them. They didn't know where they lived. They didn't know anything about them because they didn't have to. They didn't have to. And so to now expect people who don't have the lived experience and 
have not had access to the lived experience because of segregation, right? To now go ahead and have a conversation about something they don't know nothing about, how's that going to work? <laughs> you know, seriously. And so I'm always telling people, and I know, look, I'm a black woman who every once in a while, I'm just tired. Sure. Okay. I'm just tired because you keep telling people, I'm doing this for 30 years. You keep telling people the same stuff over and over and over again, and they don't get it. And then they argue with you and they tell you, oh, that can't be true. I mean, it's like, hello, that was my experience. What do you mean it can't be true? Right. So we're dealing with all of that. So I get that black and brown folks are tired. Like we don't even want talk to white folks about race anymore. Like we're done, right? Like y'all are just waking up. We, we done, we never fell asleep because we couldn't, you know, right? So to expect that people of color and black and brown people are going to help you on that road, that's a lot to expect. And it reeks of having to serve in your house. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Okay. So now you still need the information because you got to make the transformation, right? Right. So here's what I tell white folks. Don't be expecting too much from black and brown people around this stuff. Y'all could do some research because you know what? Back then we didn't have nothing, but y'all got Google, okay? So just Google it, okay? So so that's the first thing I'm going to say to you. Don't be asking your black and brown friends to give you a reading list. Nobody gave us a reading list. Google it, okay? So that's the first thing. The other piece of that is for black and brown folks. And we're going to have to... I hate to say it, we have to be patient because they are just, they, y'all just woke up. And you know how it is when you first wake up? It's like you're yawning, you're stretching, you're trying to figure out where the floor is. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's kind of where you are right now. But we've done been cooking, okay? And so it's hard, right? So that piece is hard. So what I tell my people of color, my black and brown folks, is that we're going to have to be a little bit more patient and that that patience is worth having. Because if white people don't figure this out, our black and brown children ain't never going to be safe. It's as simple as that. So we're all in this together. Like Dr. King said, we all came over on different ships. We're all in the same boat now. Mm -hmm. That's what that is. That's what that is. And so we need to work together. We need to work collectively to make the difference that needs to be made so that none of our children continue to inherit this stuff. Yes. And that means going into our hearts and learning who we really are, who we really came on this planet to be. Ultimate, our biggest mandate and our only mandate is to love. That's it. Everything else is superfluous. Everything else is superfluous. And because we have been so misinformed around that stuff, we think that we're only supposed to love one or two people, the folks in our family, Mm. maybe the cousins, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Not necessarily. If they did something wrong, we don't even want to talk about them. You know, they're not part of our family, you know, like all those people nowadays. It's like, well, those those old folks, they own slaves. That's not my family, you know? (laughs) So, you know, like we need to own the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then we need to work together to make a difference. We need to work together because we're all in this together. We just inherited it differently based on the group that we were cast into. Yeah. Thank you so much, Milagros. I am aware of your time and I want to let you go do your next thing. But first, would you mind telling people where to come connect with you and go deeper with your work? Yes. So every Monday we're doing a lunch and learn. And it's between an hour, an hour and a half. 
where I give a lot of this information and then we open it up for questions. And they can get that information by putting in my name, Milagros Phillips, and in Eventbrite. We're putting it on Eventbrite so people can have access to it. And I can't tell you what the link is. It's at all these numbers and letters and stuff. But, but if you just put my name and, you know, all of these, will, all of these events will come up on Eventbrite. Okay. And then you could always go on my website and you can get more information about the work that I do. I work with corporate America and, you know, institutions and so on. But my favorite thing right now is that lunch and learn because I'm seeing people like, you know, starting that journey and feeling like they're transforming and they're, it's just really, really exciting. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping um, we've got like a couple hundred people who are, you know, from different parts of the world who are like core come every week. But I'm hoping that I really want to build that up to at least a thousand people because that's impact, right? Like that's the frequency. We want to change the frequency. So, so I'm grateful. Thank you so much for having me on your program. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm so excited that you guys are looking into this and that you're willing to open up and share, share with others. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your wisdom and your time. We love you, Milagros. Thank you. Love you too. Bye. Bye. What if there was a time management system that was actually designed for the way your body works to support your superpowers and get in the flow as opposed to going against the flow for how your body works. Now there is. It's called the Do Less Planner and it is available now in limited quantities. Head over to Do Less planner.com and get yours while supplies last do less planner.com